best-selling author Enrique Flores Galvez, author of the book 90 Miles to Havana, which is part of our new CKLA Grade 6 materials. Enrique discusses not only the book, but also his own experiences as a child who fled Cuba to the United States in the early 1960s. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the latest edition of the Building Knowledge Podcast. Today, I have a really special guest with us. Um, we have best-selling author Enrique Flores Galvis. He wrote one of the books that we are using in our sixth grade language arts curriculum, and the title is 90 Miles to Havana. Enrique, thank you so much for joining us um, today on the podcast. What I would love for you to do is just to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. Well, my name is Enrique Flores Galvez, as you said, and uh, I came to the United States in 1961 with uh, Operation Pedro Pan, which was uh, a, 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 an operation with the State Department that granted kids uh, provisional visas to come to the United States after the, the uh, revolution. And I've uh, lived in, in all over the United States, mostly in, in New England. I am, uh, I am a painter and a writer and a father and a teacher. And uh, there's a lot of details in between there, but I don't know if I want to get that, that detail right now. I don't want to bore you with a lot of stuff. I, I, I was able to see some of your work um, on your website, and it's beautiful. So what inspired you. you to become a writer? <clears throat> Let's see. Well, as a teacher, I teach about painting and uh, teach about mostly about painters. And in order to teach about painters, you have to tell stories about their lives. And you have to know and understand their times and their characters. So I pretty much had to weave a story for every day for the, the, the painters that I was talking about. So I was pretty well-versed as, as far as telling stories. And I became a point where my daughters were of age where I, I thought they should understand where I came from, how I got to this country, which was different than a lot of the other parents in, in, our, in, our, in our neighborhood, I guess. But not so different, because I live in a neighborhood with, that's very kind of mixed as far as uh, immigrants and, and stuff. And um, so I, I needed to tell that story, and I started to tell them stories every night at bedtime stories about with these two characters that were that lived in Cuba, uh, Ernestina and Enriquito. Actually, they were the two characters that were from my first book, Raining. And uh, from those stories, that book was born. And then, um, and then I realized that um, in starting to look at um, the history of things, I, uh, I realized that I had lived through a very important piece of history um, I'm a buff of, I, I read a lot about history and I, I realized that I lived through a very important historical moment as far as the United States and Cuba and the Western Hemisphere is concerned. And um, I wanted to tell that story from a child's point of view because I think that's the important aspect of, of writing is to, to get, to tell your stories and, and make your points to, to people who are listening with, a, with an open heart. And that's what I find my readers are in general. That's what I love to speak to my readers is because uh, they're unbiased and and they they try to understand things with an open heart, like I said. 
So what specifically inspired you then to go from the stories that you were telling your daughters to writing 90 Miles to Vanna, which is sort of biographical, autobiographical, correct? Yeah, it's, um, I started it by writing about uh, the Cuban Revolution, actually, for, from a knees-up perspective, from a, from a child's perspective, like I said. I was born the year that the, the Cuban Revolution actually began, 1952. That's the year that Vincencio Batista, the, the dictator, uh, decided that he was one of the candidates to be elected, to running for office, running for president. When he looked at the uh, chances that he had of getting elected, he saw that he didn't have a very good chance. So he, he and the army colluded and they took over the government. And from that point on, there was an active revolution going on against to, to unseat him. And, uh, and uh, so I started to write all the events that I remember, how that, the revolution sort of ramped up and all the things that I saw and uh, all the things that I experienced. And I, um, so that's where I started because I wanted my kids to realize that things don't start with a big bang. They start slowly and they, they sort of creep up. And, uh, and I, I, I made some kind of conclusions that there were some teachable moments there that about, about our constitution and about, about rule of law. And I, I, I found that one of the flaws of Cuban government was that we didn't have a solid constitution that, that all was respected. And it was very common for people to go outside the constitution to get their, to get their, their, their claims heard. So it was easier to pick up a gun than it was to pick up a pen, uh, for, for different reasons, but uh, I wanted to teach. There's a, there are moments in the book where I, I think I made that point, tried to make that point where you should do the Constitution away with Dolores. But um, so, having seen all those those events and uh, having written a very big fat book when I started the the uh, the whole production, but my editor said, "Well, you know, tell you what, let's start the book with you leaving, closer to leaving." And she chopped out all these great stories. I thought were great stories about uh, about the things that I had seen. Um, so uh, so I had to start it out. But it isn't it isn't a strictly um, biograph. It's it's based on my life, based on events in my life. But there are things that were added to it, and and the timing was was changed in certain things to, to make it a to round it out as a better story. So it's more of a historical fiction story, historical historical fiction book. Excuse me, if I if I stumble on my words, I have Parkinson's, and sometimes it's uh it's it makes you shake and makes your voice kind of shaky. I'm usually not like this. Oh but, no. <laughs> um. Is there is is there any um plans of taking those pieces that were chopped out of this book and creating another book? Yeah, I've been noodling around with them. I was just reading them right now, just reading a few things. And they're really interesting. I mean, there's one about uh, the, the night before the Bay of Pigs invasion. And uh, my father was a really, it's, it's a kind of an anti-gun uh, idea. My father was really anti-gun because he had some tragedies in his family relating to guns. 
and he never let us play with guns. But so we were as kids, we were just like we would make guns out of secretly make guns out of out of sticks and and whatever we could find, and keep and hide them from my father. But he would get really mad. But um, uh, this this story was about the the night before the Bay of Pigs when uh, for some reason crazy reason he packed us all up in the car and we went to stay at somebody's house somebody a friend's house who had left secretly left Cuba in a boat and he wanted to go he wanted to be there to keep the lights on and make it appear as if they were still there but unfortunately that house was on right on the uh, perimeter of the Columbia military airfield which was the first place that they bombed right the night before uh, the Bay of Pigs invasion so that night I woke up to to actual bombing, but the the, the point was that I had found this room where the the owner of the house kept a, a whole wall full of replicas of of, of uh, fake guns of Lugers and revolvers and stuff, and I was playing with them and my father discovered me in the floor there, was surrounded by all these guns and he got really mad at me because I was having this kind of like daydream of like shooting Indians and you know doing all these horrible things with the guns. That uh, that kids imagine how how fun they are, but that night I woke up to, to the reality of it, and the reality was nothing like what I'd seen in the movies and what I imagined. Uh, how much fun it would be! It was, it was just horrendous. So uh, that's 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 the type of piece that was cut out. Um, so um, yeah, so that's. That's I've, I've I've been thinking about putting it together, so just finding some string that goes through it, some kind of a thread that goes through it, and uh, maybe I'll do that. I have a bunch of they're like vignettes, and uh, yeah, but yeah. I oh, I'm sure that that would be, um, so I mean, just what you spoke of is very timely right now. Um, in just what's going on around the world. So I'm sure that that would resonate with young readers, just as this, this book had. Um, so was it difficult for you to write something that was so close to you? Um, yeah, yes, it was. a. I think writing a book, you, you go into a spell. It's like going into a into this to this other land. I find it anyway. It's like I would have I would get my computer or my pencil and I would go into this room and it's like I was going far away from my family, going back to this place and it's just all these details and things would come back to life. And um, sometimes it was difficult because some of the things I remembered were were hard, like leaving our parents and the moments of of feeling lonely when I was in the at the camp. Um, just feeling alone and thinking that I was never going to see anybody again or never going to be home again. There were a lot of like emotions that I remember uh, came bubbling up that I had not, that I was amazed at how powerful they were and how deep I had sort of buried them So um, that I had never thought about them. So I had called up my brothers and we started talking about this and we both, we all, all three of us agreed that we had just, we never, we just thought it was kind of strange that we never talked about that period in our life, never discussed it. So uh, it was just a matter of having, having sort of the fortitude to every day sort of go back and face it. 
But there were also a lot of nice moments that I remembered and brought back a lot of laughter and brought us together, uh, my brothers and I. So um, it is like it is like going somewhere else and uh, and inhabiting another place. When I go to give, uh, I used to go, go do a lot of book talks with, with, at schools. Excuse me. Um, I used to use the the analogy of, of an avatar. It's like uh, I would go and ride this avatar through this through this memory land, and all this world would sort of come to life that I never, didn't know existed or didn't had never brought up again, and I would see things that I never thought I had seen before, and it's uh, it's just a testament to the complexity and the power of the brain that it's always taking in information, but it's not it doesn't have the time to to uh, to to edit it or to to really think about it, but it just stores it away. And sometimes it just pops up, and it, there it is. So, um, so it was a wonderful experience. I know when I when I go back and I reread books that I have read that I read as a child, and then I read it now, I I always see it from a different perspective from being a parent. When you were going through, I'm interested to know when you were going through and writing, and all of these memories were coming back. And now that you were a parent yourself, was, was there any time when you also put yourself in your parents' shoes and thought about what they must have been going through when they had to let you and your brothers go basically, you know, 90 miles across the ocean um, in such a dangerous way for freedom? Yeah, I mean, uh, I could conceive, I could never conceive, I mean, we sent our kids to camp every summer, and I remember when we were first trying to find the right camps, we, we made these huge trips all the way over New Hampshire and, and Maine and Massachusetts, trying to find just the right camp, and every with the criteria, we were so tough on each camp to make sure that it was safe, and not, really not wanting to let them out of our sight. And then I would think about what my parents had to go through and how steely they were, how just sort of determined they were to do it, and how important they thought it was it was to to send us away. So uh, yeah, I, I I I fully realized that's when I fully realized what their sacrifice had been, that their effort. You know, when I became a parent, I, I saw how hard it is to part with your child, even to let them go to school. Yep, I cannot even imagine how your parents must have felt to do this. Um, I'm the same as, as, as you are. I mean, this is a different time, but we also weren't put in that situation. It, it just was heartbreaking to me to think about that. So what was it like for you and your brothers um, when you finally got to Miami and you were at the camp? What was it like? Yes. What was it like for you guys? Well, we were we were pretty close. I mean, we were uh, we were kind of a unit. And I had my oldest brother Aquilino, but his real name is Richard, or Hannibal. <laughs> it's funny. His name was Anibal, and he lasted one day. Uh, we went, I remember when we finally got up north in New England. He went to school, and uh, we we all went to our respective. He went to junior high, and we went. I went to grammar school, and I came home, and my teacher had changed my name to Henry. 
And uh, so she told me it's got three syllables, and that's easy. you know, Enrique's got three syllables, Henry's got two. It's a lot better. You you thank me for it. And then Rich came, uh, uh, Anibal came home with a torn shirt and a, and a black eye, and his, and his crooked his eyes, his, his glasses crooked, and he'd been fighting all day because people were making fun of him. Oh my gosh! <laughs> so the first thing he said was, "I'm changing my name to Richard," which was his second name. So, but. Uh, the, getting to the camp was just, um, I don't know, there was just a lot of smells. You know how when you were a kid, everything comes in a different different way. It's like the smells and the the, the smell of the lockers and the, the look and the feel of the, 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 bunk, the steel bunk beds. And at night, the uh, the kids crying in the dark in these, these big Quonset huts that we were they slept in, these metal Quonset huts. And uh, I mean, the people were nice, the, the, the priests and the nuns who were there, and uh, but it was overcrowded. I, I never really saw too many of them. They're, the kids sort of ran it themselves. And uh, and uh, yeah, it was just, a, it, it, you know, kids are very political and very wise. I mean, we just, we were at that age where we were just very savvy about what's going on in a, a playground. We were all really good baseball players, so we had spent a lot of time playing in, in sandlot baseball. So the first thing we did was to find where the baseball team was, and you know what, who was playing, and what what was doing, and get into that, and uh, and get incorporated that way. So um, it was easy to do to do that. But kids are very political creatures, and uh, so we we sort of found out who was who was what, and uh, we went along our way. Tried to figure out the best to make the best of it. And then, how long was it before your parents were able to come? They came at about. Uh, I, I, that's a. That's a. Um, we came in uh, sixty-one August sixty-one, and they came. I think in sixty-two, early sixty-two, sometime. So we were there a little longer than most parents, most kids, because. Uh, my uncle had said he would take us, but he wasn't. He wasn't coming, and we were kept, we kept telling him not to split us up because my uncle was coming, and he was, he was not giving the okay until he was getting ready. He got his family. He had four kids himself, so until he got his family ready in uh, Massachusetts, in, in Connecticut, um, we had to wait to, for things to be clear for that. So they were they were able to leave us to wait because they they like to get people coming in and then going out as quickly as possible. Because it was very crowded. Wow, it, it it's just such an amazing story. And um, as I've mentioned to you, uh, at, in all of our pilot schools, this was by far the students' favorite favorite unit. It was their favorite novel. Um, no matter what part oh, of the country so they were hear. in, they loved it. That's so good to hear. So I, I just have one last question, and it's what would you want um, young readers to take away after reading this book? Well, I'd, I'd like the readers to enjoy a good story, you know, to be captivated by a good story and, um, and the adventure of it and the, the, um, the, the innovation of the kids, of the, the, the characters. But I also like to to think about um, one of the things that was important, like I said before, that I realized that in our in my youth and my growing up in Cuba, one of the problems was that the Constitution was not respected, 
and that uh, that when they got here, for instance, when they cut the book in half, when they cut the book, uh, when it took all those parts out of the beginning of the book, um, and I had to start it, I rewrote the the, the camp part so that the, there was a bully, Caballo was it was a dominant character, and because that was a model, that was kind of a metaphor for what I had seen in Cuba. Where there was a strong man, and and by force he was uh, he was like making people do their will, and that, uh, there was resistance, and which is what happened in Cuba. There was a resistance to Batista, and uh, and then there was a armed uprising or whatever, and in the camp, it pretty much the same thing happened. But I wanted to point out that there was an alternate way to do it, and that um, unfortunately, when you when kids see something done a certain way, they they turn to model tend to model their behavior. So uh, that's why I had Dolores to cook in there to sort of give them the, what the democratic way was, what, what they do in America, which is to, to vote and to, to have uh, to make you know, to have votes and to, to reach out to the representatives and to get change done that way, not, not to have it done through physical uh, violence or through uprisings in an organized way. So if anything, it's more about, you know, how it's about how to organize yourself and to do things the right way so you don't end up like like Cuba, um, which I'm, you know, I'm very proud to be a Cuban. Don't get me wrong, but um, but I think that we've had certain uh, missteps along the way that, uh, that, that are not all the fault of, the United, of, of Cuba or the United States, but they're sort of a compounded um, guilt there. But... Um, but anyway, also that, um, and also I wanted kids to, I want, when I was a kid, I was, we always used to play around with machines and, and nuts and bolts and, and stuff. And, uh, I remember we went to, we went to live in a, in a place called Bloomfield, Connecticut. And, uh, before we lived there, we lived in another place called Manchester. And we used to build, I was telling somebody this story. We used to build, uh, go-karts out of wood, out of wood frames and, uh, Old, old lawnmower engines, and we were always tinkering around and finding stuff. And but the the, the wooden frames wouldn't hold up very long because the bolts would, would strip, and they would fall apart. But then when we moved to Bluefield, there was a whole uh, neighborhood where all these uh, kids, there was parents who were machinists that, that worked at this big airplane manufacturer, Pratt and Whitney, and they were these machinists had uh, had drill presses and lathes and all kinds of tools in their garage. And the kids had sort of taken up with those tools. Those tools. So when we went to build uh, go-karts, they, they, they said, you said, I want to make a frame. And they'd, they'd whip up a frame and, you know, in a couple of hours out of metal, you know, which, with, with just these very professional-looking things. And I was just really impressed by the fact that the kids, using the parents' tools that they left around were innovative and they were creative as the parents were also, which sadly is a, it's a whole class of people that are not no longer here in the United States, that the tool and die people. But, um, but anyway, that's, that's what I would like to take, to take away from is that um, there's a lot of things that you can do with your hands and with your creativity, um, even if you don't have the means to, to buy all the parts and like Tomas, Versus Tomas was a, a real character that I met on in Penn Station, and his story was a, a, absolutely a true story. As he told me, he was a homeless man, and I uh, he came up to me asking for a quarter, but I could hear in his in his accent that he was Cuban, 
And then I said, well, let's, I'll buy you lunch. I'll buy you breakfast. And I was going out to teach, so I had some time. Um, I bought him breakfast, and he told me his story about how he left Cuba, which was exactly how I used it for Tomas' story. He, he actually drove a, a launch, a, a boat, a large boat from, from Cuba to Miami by himself. So um, that was interesting, I thought. I think all your characters are so rich and I will tell you, I couldn't tell which ones were ones that, you know, you created like Dolores or versus real people like Tomas. Um, everyone just seems so real and so alive in your writing. Um, I enjoyed it. The students have enjoyed it so far. Hopefully we'll reach thousands of other students in the next year as we um, publish these materials. And I thank you so much, Enrique, for taking the time to talk with, with me, um, allow our listeners to learn a little bit more about you and a little bit more insight into the book that hopefully the teachers that are listening will be able to share that with their students as well. 